Hey everybody, Pierre Quinn here. You're listening to episode 139 of the Leading Wild Green podcast, where my mission is to help you live, learn, and lead with confidence. On this episode of the podcast, I'm joined by Karen Hurt, author of the book Courageous Cultures, How to Build Teams of Micro-Innovators, Problem Solvers, and Customer Advocates. And before we jump into that conversation with Karen, I just want to thank you so much for supporting the Leading Wild Green podcast. You listen to it, you rate it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, you share it on social media. And as I say on nearly every episode, the more you share the podcast, the more we're able to reach other leaders that need support on their leadership journey. And I want to thank you for sharing it as much as you possibly can so that we can reach more and more leaders. Listen, we're right on the edge of a new year. And as a leader, there are some conversations that you need to have and there's some planning that you need to do. And I want to support you on that journey. Head over to PRCQuinn.com slash coaching. That's PRCQuinn.com slash coaching and sign up for my courageous coaching leadership intensive We'll spend three hours together reviewing all the things that have happened with you and your team over the year and then strategizing on how we can leverage 2020 experiences for 2021 success. That's PRCQuinn.com slash coaching, PRCQuinn.com slash coaching. My guest on this episode is Karen Hurt. Karen, founder of Let's Grow Leaders, helps leaders around the world achieve breakthrough results Without losing their soul. A former Verizon Wireless executive, she has over two decades of experience in sales, customer service, and HR. She was recently named on Inc.'s list of 100 great leadership speakers and American Management Association's 50 Leaders to Watch. She is the author of Winning Well, a manager's guide to getting results without losing your soul, overcoming an imperfect boss, Glowstone Peak, and the book that we'll discuss today, Courageous Cultures. Here's my conversation with Karen Hurt. Karen, thanks for being my guest today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. So this conversation has been several months in the making, and finally, you know, all the stars and calendars aligned for us to talk, and I know we're going to have a fantastic, fantastic time today. As, as, as we start this conversation, talk to me about corporate life. What's corporate life like? I mean, we're in the the world of independent contracting and entrepreneurship, mm-hmm. and it seems so glamorous, at least on Instagram. But take us back in the story and give us some insight on what what's the corporate life like. Okay, so I spent 20 years at Verizon, and uh, the first decade was human resources, leadership development, organizational development. So I saw the whole staff side and the merger integration and all of the nuances involved with that. And uh, then I spent a second decade running a lot of uh, operations roles. So I had led a 2,200-person sales team, a 10,000-person customer service organization. So, uh, you know, corporate life is, (laughs) where do you begin, right? Uh, One of the things I think that is really important when you are navigating a big corporation is really understanding the strategic direction, what is really important and where you fit into that. No matter where you are, whether you're, you know, in a contact center answering the phones, whether you are a, a supervisor leading your team for the very first time, it's do I understand what matters here 
And how can I add the most strategic value from the role that I'm in? Mm. And uh, the people I think who really do well are, are people who genuinely care about the mission of the organization. Where it gets wonky is when you have um, people just starting to play all the politics. And it, mm -hmm. when it becomes about winning for yourself as opposed to winning for your team, uh, that's when it becomes stressful <laughs> and uh <laughs> And frustrating for many, I think. Did, was that on your your life goals to be uh, a, a corporate executive and to work in like a, to work at a top company? Was when you were going through maybe your high school notes or your college college yearbook? Did you say I'm going to be at a place like Verizon? I really, you know, it's interesting. I would say not in high school, but in college, I really started to see, you know, I wanted to, I knew I wanted to do leadership mm -hmm. and I, I really believed that I wanted to do organizational development. So, and I wanted to do that in a place that was big enough mm -hmm. to be able to do the strategic things and help as many people. Uh, it, it, but it was interesting because then my path kind of took a I was working on a PhD in organizational development and I had this professor who was actually never my professor. It was really interesting. He was working on similar work. It was self-directed work teams at this, at, at the time it was the big thing back then. Mm -hmm. And he had written a book around it and I had written a paper and he, and I looked at his bio and I'm like, Oh my gosh, he is on my campus just in a different department. So I went running across campus with my paper and I showed it to him and he was delightful. He spent two hours with me mm. and he said, let's publish okay. this thing. We'll co-publish it, which was, yeah. I'll help you. And that was fantastic. So I got to know him through that process. And about six months into the, our relationship, he said to me, I don't think you should finish your PhD, mm. which is a really wacky thing. And it really hurt my feelings. Yeah. And uh, I said, why? I said, I've gotten all A's. Like, what are you talking about? And we're publishing this academic paper. I'm doing good. Yeah. And he says, you don't want to study this and you don't want to teach this. Uh, being in a university is going to make you crazy. Mm. You have to go do this. And I said, well, the problem is the reason I'm getting my PhD is so that I can get an entry and, you know, ultimately have more credentials to get into this. A, a company's like, people in corporate aren't going to care whether you have a PhD. In fact, it, they may scare, it may scare them. Mm. So he said, what I think you need is a contact. And so he introduced me to this woman who was Bell Atlantic at the time, um, uh, Margaret Sears. And I met with her and she said, yeah, I'll hire you. So I always thought I'd go back and finish the PhD. And it's hysterical because, you know, now I'm doing all this research and I'm hiring PhDs to help yeah. me with the research. And so I, I think it all comes together at the end. But I think that was the pivotal moment when I said, oh, I'm really going to go do this at a big company. And uh, I really did have intentions. Once I got in, I did want to continue to grow in the company. And, you know, I love having a big team. Love that. Mm -hmm. Because you can have such a strategic impact. And, you know, your ideas. And, and that's been the real challenge now. Now my team is tiny again. <laughs> and having to get to used to, well, if I'm going to come up with an idea, there's only a handful of us to implement it. So I have to only pick some of the ideas and not all of the ideas. Yeah. yeah. I, I want to ask you about leaning in a lot of times as emerging leaders, you know, we graduate from pretty good schools. We get great grades, all the credentials, you know, super smart. And we think sometimes we can just will it 
will it to happen, leverage the how intelligent we are to get to where we need to go. But you took a courageous step. You saw someone close to you on your campus and you literally activated the courage to reach out to them. And, you know, the magic happened after that. Can we talk a little bit about the value of that, of not necessarily trying to quadruple down on just how smart you are and the importance for especially emerging leaders? Well, all leaders, but especially emerging leaders to build strong network connections. Yeah, I really believe in that so much. And you know, that one in that particular circumstance, uh, I was going in, I was just so curious about his work. I was, I really wanted to hear what he was up to and where, you know, understand his research. So, you know, I didn't show up like, help me. Right. Mm-hmm. I, I, that is not the approach I took. I showed up and said, I am so impressed by you. I've read all, all of your books, right? Like who wouldn't want to invite that person into the Of course, marriage? of course. Right? If, somebody, if somebody rang my doorbell right now and said that, I mean, I'd be like, wear your mask and come on in. <laughs> but um, I, so I do think, and one of the things I really always encourage emerging leaders is when you're building your network, whether it is on LinkedIn, whether it is in person, whether it is uh, just making, you know, relationships, always see what value can you add to them first, you know, and, and in a, from a genuine way and from a real genuine way, I will, I will give you a, a, for, for instance, um, it was interesting. I had this uh, kid, I mean, he, I mean, he's a grown up, but he's a lot, lot younger than me in, in uh, Southeast Asia reach out to me. Mm -hmm. And this was, uh, this was a couple of years ago. And he's like, can you help me with my book? And I'm like, Oh, isn't that cute? (laughs) But I was like, I was so I I, but I was like, you know what, bless his heart. Sure. Right. And so I, you know, it was a self published book. And I thought I just thought he I was just helping him. I had Mm -hmm. I didn't think there was any way in the world that he would be able to help me. But Mm -hmm. you know, so I think that's the thing show up generous. Well, so as it turns out, I help him and we do some webinars, and I promote his book. Well, about six months later, I get an opportunity to speak at the HR Asia conference in Singapore. Well, he's, he was in Malaysia and I'm like, well, I, this, those are very close together. I know somebody in Southeast Asia. So I call him and he's like, yeah. So as it turns out, I run this major training company over here. And um, would you like, what if I got 150 CEOs and COOs in a room for you? Would you like to, you know, partner on a, on a workshop? I'd pay you wow. X amount of money. I'm like, what? <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> so I think, you know, I mean, that's a, a, a if you start generous, if you, yeah. you just, I think the, you know, the universal take care of itself is, is a, you know, woo, but I, I really mm-hmm. believe in, in practical karma. Like yeah. if you just are really showing up and helping people and you are, and, and you are um, interested in other people and supportive of other people, it may not be that person. I mean, that one was very lucky, mm-hmm. but I, what, I see the opposite happening on LinkedIn. I, I see people immediately, they reach out and they say something nice and then they have an automated five series message of, and they're trying to sell me. And yeah. <laughs> Don't do that, right? <laughs> like as soon as you click connect, and it's like the flurry just comes in. Yeah, yeah. 
So I want to talk about beginning to transition for, from Verizon. I was watching a, a interview you did and you were talking to, you were sharing the story about uh, connecting with a guy named David and you guys, you two become, you know, pretty good friends. You, you, you're blogging and you're reading each other's writing. And David's David says, if I remember the interview correctly, he says, I think you're probably getting ready to leave because your writing is getting a bit edgier. <laughs> tell, tell, tell us a story about that. And then for the people that don't know uh, who, who, how did who you David connect is. with David? Yeah. Yeah. So it, it's interesting. Um, and I think this is changing in companies now, mm-hmm. but this was eight years ago. And when I was writing the blog, Verizon was not happy that I was writing the blog. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, I was getting coaching from my boss, like, you know, this could hurt your career. And I, and which was very disappointing because yeah. A, I was never using the word Verizon and B, I was telling people how to get great breakthrough results while staying a decent human being. And I was providing practical tools. I'm like, this is perfect for Verizon's brand. Like, why would you not think this is a good idea? And it was very disturbing. And then, of course, when people tell me I can't do something, that's when I I was like, well, you know, you can't (laughs) actually stop me if I'm not if I'm doing this on my own time and I'm not there's freedom of speech here. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, but I was very careful, right? I was very careful in it as I was writing the blog because I didn't intend to leave Verizon. Mm-hmm. And so I was really just trying to establish, you know, and help. And I think there became a point where I, I went and I did, I took, I was getting all these calls and, you know, will you come speak? Will you write when's your book? And I'm like, oh, I, I can't, I'm, I'm like, I'm going to, this, I have a day job. <laughs> And so I did decide to take a day off from uh, from work, and I was invited to speak at the International Customer Service Association uh, conference. It was my very first external keynote. I had done a lot of internal things, but and never anything external. And uh, I got off the stage, and uh, Shep Hyken also said, "When are you leaving Verizon?" And I was like, "What? What?" He, so Shep was the president of the National Speakers Association. Mm-hmm. So I was starting to get like these, you know, and I said, "Well, he's like, you're just so passionate about what you do." I think that was the moment that my post started getting edgier, mm-hmm. because I I felt like you know if I was really going to speak about the dangers of toxic leadership, yeah, then I had to be able to call you know talk about that as opposed to be just you know you need to have. Focus on your most important thing. You know, uh, here's how you interview. You know, I was at my post before were very careful that that yeah. nobody in PR could get upset about them. But if there was an inclination, I might be talking about a behavior that I had seen at Verizon. I was worried about losing my job. So I think there was a point um, about a year before I left that I was like, you know what? If I lose my job, that'll be the push I need. <laughs> <laughs> So, um, so David <clears throat> and I, uh, David and I met online. He, not that swipe right, swipe left kind of online, but uh, we were both blogging in the leadership space mm-hmm. and uh, he read something that I had written and thought he had written it uh, because it was so aligned. So he picked up the phone and called me and he said, your posts are getting edgier. And so we, you know, that was lovely. We said, oh, we should collaborate on something someday and didn't really think much about it. Well, then uh, we ended up both at the same book publishing uh, 
program lab uh, where you were learning how to publish, traditionally publish a book. And we started talking like, hey, you, it's you. And uh, (laughs) we realized that we were pretty much writing the same book. So at that point, you can either become collaborators or, you know, competitors. Yeah. And I'm all about the collaboration. And so is he. And so we decided to write Winning Well, our first book together. Uh, He was living in Colorado. Uh, I was living in Maryland. We wrote the entire book without ever being in the same room, Um, all over, you know, mostly chatting, like, uh, you know, text messaging and that kind of thing. And then having a conversation, a physical conversation on the um, Zoom every every now and then. Mm -hmm. And we would alternate the chapters. And anyway, we got all the way through, realized we had fallen in love. Um, and so <laughs> we got married and merged our businesses together. So that's our story. That, that That's awesome. Now, I know some people are thinking, hey, maybe I need to find somebody to write a book with. Right. And <laughs> that's how I'll find love. But I think I think that's uh, a great part of the story that, that you two share frequently and and really feeds into the the idea of what it means to be courageous. I mean, all of these things, all of these projects leading kind of up to this point. So how did you two decide to write Courageous Cultures? So it was really interesting. Um, we were out doing our Winning Well programs all over the world and through across a variety of industries. And we were noticing a consistent pattern, mm-hmm. which was at the very senior level, we, we would hear frustrated executives saying, you know, why don't people speak up? Why are people so scared? Why am I the only one who is walking around and I discover a best practice? Why haven't they lifted it up? What's wrong with my middle managers? Why aren't they encouraging people to speak up? And then we would be doing supervisor training Mm -hmm. and we would hear, nobody ever wants my ideas. The last time I spoke up, I got in trouble. Nothing ever is going to happen anyway. Why bother? And we thought, wait, are you working for the same company? And this just kept happening. So, you know, employees have ideas, good ideas. Mm -hmm. Most leaders really do want to hear them. There's some exceptions, but most that we encountered really genuinely did want to hear them. And somehow there was a disconnect. So we partnered with the University of Colorado uh, Social Research Lab on an extensive research study that was both quantitative and qualitative. And then we also took all of the information as uh, we were doing programs and collected data in those programs uh, to get underneath. Why aren't people speaking up Hmm. when they're not speaking up? What are the nature of the ideas that they're holding back? And in organizations where people really do have the confidence to share what is happening from a leadership perspective and a cultural perspective. So, so frame it for us. How, How do you define what a courageous culture is? Yeah. So our favorite definition of culture is uh, from Seth Godin, uh, the Mm. marketing guru, who says, people like us do things like this. I just love Love that. that. It's so simple. People like us do things like this. Well, in a courageous culture, people like us speak up. They share ideas. Uh, The default is to contribute. It's where actually silence isn't safe. Uh, Effort is everything. And, And so that's, you know, in a courageous culture, people are proactively going out and asking people for their ideas and people feel safe and confident to share their ideas and they know how to share an idea. I was having a conversation, a previous podcast recording with Dr. Martha Saunders from the University of West Florida. And she was talking about her leadership team there, the University of West Florida. And she said, 
if you're on my admin team and we are working on a project and you have an idea, perspective, something to challenge, a pushback, and we make a bad decision and you had the information and you didn't mm-hmm. share it, you didn't present it, you didn't challenge authority. She says, I don't know. I can't trust you to be on my team. I need this to be a safe enough space for you to, to, to make that contribution. And what, what happens in cultures where people, where people say, well, the safety, the psychological safety, emotional, social safety is in silence. And how do leaders begin to turn that around to create a place where silence isn't safe, but speaking up is the safest thing to do? Yeah, so it's interesting. Uh, Dr. Amy Evanson of Harvard, who wrote our foreword, you know, she's one of the pioneers in psychological safety, and and you know she says that one of the main challenges is that people are more likely to hold on to a negative experience hmm. than a positive experience. And why this is so important for employees and for leaders is that even if you are the very best leader, right? Like you are doing everything you can to hold, you know, to encourage an open environment. There is a strong possibility that somebody has had a negative experience in the past Mm -hmm. and they're like, I'm never doing that again. Yeah. And so you have to overcome that, like that. You have to work even harder to convince people that it's really safe. And so I think, I mean, I think that's where it starts. We talk about navigating the narrative, mm-hmm. which is navigating your own story around speaking up. It, it, it's often interesting, you know, we'll work with managers or supervisors and they say, yeah, I really want my team to contribute their ideas. And then we watch their behavior and they're not speaking up. They're not challenging their peers. They're playing the political game. And, and so, you know, your team is watching you. Mm-hmm. So that the most important thing you can do is model it. If you want people to speak up, be someone who speaks up. If you want advocate, help them advocate for the ideas. And then it's really about creating clarity about where you need an idea and that you really want people's ideas. Uh, one of the things, big mistakes that we see people make is say, well, I have an open door or I've told my team they're welcome to bring me an idea anytime. Well, that's can be overwhelming to many people, right? So, mm-hmm. but, but if you say, you know what, here's the thing, strategically, as we head into 2021, this is where we need a great idea. We need to figure out how we're going to maintain the productivity levels while people are still working from home without burning everyone out. Yeah. Like now I'm like, oh, well, that's where you need an idea. Well, I got ideas about that. And I, I think, and so in our Courageous Cultures workshops, we have found that as specific as we can be about where we want ideas. And so we'll work with a, a senior leader and say, okay, tell me the three areas you need an idea. And now we're going to apply these tools in those strategic areas. And that works way better than just like, let's do some brainstorming, how we can make things better around here. And then the next is cultivating curiosity, which is going out and proactively asking people for their ideas. And we have a variety of tools around how to do that. But the simplest is asking a courageous question. And a courageous question is just simply a question that is both um, vulnerable and specific. So Don Yeager, who is one of our CEO clients of a company called Mural, which is a contact center company, says, what is one policy we have that just sucks? Mm. That's a courageous question. I just love that question because, A, he's the COO. 
and he's assuming that he, I mean, he makes this rules, right? So yeah. he's assuming that he, that a, a policy created under his watch may be ticking off customers. And he wants, if that is the case, he wants to know. And then it's specific. He's just asking for one, which makes it easy. And so then and once somebody gives them one, he's like, oh, thank you so much. Is there anything else I should be aware of? Mm-hmm. Right. And, and also the thing I've known, I've known Don for 10 years and he does it consistently. It's not like, oh, one day he goes out and asks a courageous question and he never behaves right. that way again. It's a consistent approach. So people believe it over time. And then finally, I think it's really about responding with regard, which is letting people know what you're doing with your ideas. That's another area in the research that we found when you know, uh, 50% of the people said they don't share an idea because nothing will ever happen with it. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the times mm-hmm. something did happen with it, they just forgot to close the loop. Mm. We we hear a lot of stories on the Leading Wild Green podcast of you know people like you and 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 David and your team and the great clients that you work with and the amazing transformation stories. Uh, but we know in this thing that we do call work in life, every story is is not like that. Right. You have an experience where maybe you had to let go of maybe you had to fire a client because there was disconnect between what they said, what they wanted, what you talked about, and then what the leadership team was actually willing to implement. Or have you been in a place where you just, you saw that coming and you said, this wasn't a good, good fit. You know, it's so interesting that you say that because we are right now in the process of working with a marketing team to, you know, look, relook at our website, you know, who are we, who do we serve, you know, all those strategic questions that you need to ask yourself from time to time and Mm -hmm. make sure that the website is catching, keeping up with you. And in that process, you know, we said, you know, who do we serve? And we're like, we serve human centered leaders. And you know who we fire? <laughs> People who are not human-centered leaders. Yeah. And so now I think, in, you know, when you're first starting out, um, and, you know, I, w- I would have taken any work that came. You know, I was like, yeah. I, I got, got bills to I'm pay. I'm starting this business. <laughs> I need work, right? And you want leadership training? I'll give you leadership training. And now I'm like, you know what? I don't know. I want to be sure that I can help you. And, you know, our thing is winning well, you know, um, balancing confidence and humility and results in relationships, right? Well, if you are somebody who wants to churn and burn or you're trying to check the box, like I had one senior leader, he literally said this to me. I'm like, I can't believe you're saying this to me after having read my book. But he said, you know what? The thing is, I used to, when the economy was bad, it was so good because I could just hire these people. I could use them for a couple of years and then I could, you know, they could, they would quit and I just hire somebody at a lower price point. And it was really good for my margins because our job wow. isn't that complicated. And I was like, what? Wow. You know? Um, and then we had one uh, organization that we were working with and they were treating us so poorly. <laughs> and, you know, uh, canceling things, you know, ca- canceling events, uh, screw, you know, screwing around with the schedules, not returning our phone calls. And I'm like, wait, we're teaching you, you know, the program that we're having is to how n- not to act like that. Mm-hmm. Why would we let someone, do, you know, treat us this way? Yeah. And so, you know, I, we just said, you know what, we're, we're too busy. And we, we just stopped. So we can't, we can't do this work. 
And uh, so I think you do, that has been an evolution for, for us uh, to get, the, have the confidence that the work will come and to not take work that, you know, A, it's not going to work. If they're not a human centered leader, they're, our tools are not going to work. Right. You can't you can't teach uh, people uh, courageous cultures of how to go out and ask for ideas of on the other side of things. They're doing bad me too behavior. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So, so I, I imagine, and you know, give me some clarity on this with everything that's going on as we're recording this podcast episode. There, there's so much. There is the the pandemic. There are the racial tensions. There are the political tensions. There's the economic disparities. And it's creating, especially with a sense of emerging leaders, this awareness or this this kind of desire to say something and do something and be a part of some sort of significant change. Uh, But sometimes they find themselves in organizations where, as you said before, in the one this story you you just mentioned, leadership has capitalized on all of these inequities. Yeah. And they have no desire to change, even though there's, you know, universal widespread aware, like pick it. People are saying, okay, let's pick a issue and let's go all hands on deck. What do you say to emerging leaders who realize this is the culture that I'm in, that the system is literally doing churn and burn. And if I say something, I know, you know, 30, 60 days later, I'm going to be in another another place, especially if they're in a context where the leadership is bad, but they actually like their work. How do you navigate a space like that? So I have a couple of different answers on this one. I think the first piece is, is it really, Hmm. you know, and, and so I think that they're, you know, because we tend to hold on to the negative experience and we, and we see, and maybe you're, maybe it's one jerk, (laughs) but it's the whole culture Right. Is the whole culture bad or do you really not like John and is John a, a jerk? And, and so I think mm, that's the that's first good. thing is I would make sure that you're actually looking at, you know, ob- as objectively as you possibly can about what's going on. Um, and then in that context, if, especially if it's a bigger organization, is there an opportunity to find the cultural oasis to, to where can you, where can you thrive? Um, and I, I I know that, I mean, at where I was working, there were pockets of toxic leadership and there were pockets of really positive leadership. And I've worked for both. There was at one point, one situation that I was in where it wasn't that the culture was bad, but the, the, um, we, we were in a downsizing mode. So every Mm -hmm. quarter I was asked to downsize my team every Mm -hmm. single time, every quarter, a riff. For four quarter, I got to four, the fourth time that I had wow. to do this. And I was riffing box nine succession planning candidates. So like people who were the very best A players. Yeah. And it was destroying me. I mean, I had stomach issues. I had back issues. I wasn't sleeping. I, I mean, it was just, I'm like, this job is going to kill me. I have to get out. So um, that was on uh, one side of the business. Mm-hmm. So I called, I sent an email and then followed up with a phone call to the head of HR on the other side of the business. And I said, you don't know me, but I'm a succession planning candidate. 
And I have been in this job for three years and I need a new job. I would love to show you a little bit about the work that I do. And, and would you be open to an exploratory conversation? I'm happening to be in headquarters that day. And I'm going to be in headquarters, you know, on March, whatever. But well, I wasn't going to happen to be in headquarters today, but I could take a vacation day and drive to headquarters, you know? And she's like, oh, well, since you're here, stop by. And so I did. And, you know, that, and I'm like, this is the kind of role I'm looking for. Hmm. And it it took a minute. I mean, she did not have a job for me immediately. Yeah. She's like, Karen, at your level, like, there's not like, there's just all these jobs open. Um, but she said, but I, I hear you. And if you will be patient, I will be on the lookout. And it took nine months, but I got into a great job. Hmm. So I'd say, so, uh, and, and, and then I stayed another 10 years. You know, so uh, I, that would, you know, take control. That would be the first thing, like, where are the pockets? And if you are in a really bad situation and you're in a bigger organization, then where can you go? So that's my first set of things. My second is what can you do in your own sphere of influence? You know, how are you showing up for your team? How, what mentors can you bring, you know, bring along? Who, you know, what are your peer relationships? Who are the other people that are leading the way you want to be led or, or doing the things that you want to do and pull them closer and build that support network? The third thing I would say, if you are really leading in a toxic environment and, and you can't do either of those things, the best, most courageous thing you could do is leave. And I, you know, I had a, um, a woman in one of my programs and we talk about this in the book because it absolutely broke my heart. And I think it's the only time that I have facilitated where I actually got tears in my eyes. Like mm. I, I was worried that I was absolutely going to lose it in front of the front of the group. And um, she was working in um, like a research hospital environment. And she said that she had this doctor was like a narcissistic bully and she was mm. in, working with him. And one day he just went too far and was going to do a, he coming in to do an experimental procedure on a child that she was worried would hurt the child. And she didn't think that he had been honest enough with the parents. Yeah. Like, so he, she wasn't sure that, I mean, he had consent, but not real consent. And she, so she locked him out of the, she locked him out wow. of the room and she locked wow. herself in the room with the patient and made a phone call. Now that is bold. Yeah. Right. But she said, it's been terrible since then. You know, there's been this massive retaliation. And I, I looked at her and I said, why do you stay? Cause I'm a, I'm a mom, you know, I'm like, mm -hmm. you know, you're thinking, what if that were my child? Right. And I, yeah. and um, I said, why do you stay? And she's like, well, I stay because of the kids. And I'm like, this is an enormous organization. Like, why would you, you know, this, mm. you don't have to work in this with this idiot. And um, she, she found me on LinkedIn three months later. And she said, thank you for giving me the courage to leave. She's like, I, she, she didn't leave the whole organization, but she did yeah. go, she did go find another job. She's like, I'm so much happier. You know, and I, and so I share that story often because I really think sometimes if you are really working, there's a, a difference between courage and stupidity, <laughs> you know, and, yeah. you know, I mean, I got to a point with some of the people that I was working with that, you know what, I can't speak up to her, you know, I, it's not wise. And, and, and so, you know, know, know that and figure out, you know, wh how do you, it's a, it's a short life and you don't want to spend your time miserable.
Man, Karen, I know we could we could go for a much longer time, but I want to be I want to be um, a good steward of the time that we've scheduled to be together. But I'm going to ask you to sneak in, sneak in one more story. I mean, I, I love hearing and, and on the podcast, people love hearing stories of implementation of the things that you teach in your book. Give us another story of where you were working, maybe as a program, a keynote you were doing, maybe something you were doing with David where you walked away from the experience and you said, just, just like the story you just told, but you said, this is why, like, this is why we wrote the book. And this is why we developed this program. And this is why we went through all of the foolishness to have experiences like these. Yeah. I, I will share my favorite program that happened this year during COVID. And uh, so it was a, a large tech company and this, and um, this guy, he's fantastic. And so we were doing Courageous Cultures program at his level, in the middle level, and at the frontline supervisor level. So a big, big integrated thing. But he, so he says, before we start, so he's got his, all his people together. And he says, before we start, and he looks right into the, you know, right into the camera. Mm-hmm. And which, by the way, not everybody does. <laughs> like, yeah. Um, I need you, I just want to share with you a little bit about what's going on. Mm -hmm. And it was a global company. So he said, so I've been dealing with this virus since China. And, you know, at first when I got the news and our China team, I thought, oh no, our poor China teams, we need to rally together as a team to help China. And I started working around the clock and help in doing whatever we can. It never occurred to me that this was going to become a bigger problem than in China. Yeah. He says, and then, oh my gosh, now our Italy teams are dealing with this. And I'm like, so now I'm working around the clock and we're helping Italy. And then, and he's like, you know, I have employees whose parents are dying. I mean, this is just a tragedy. And he said, now it's in the United States. And now I'm like, oh, wait, this is, this is happening to us, you know? And, and so he said, and then my partner, um, has been dealing with our two, three-year-olds this entire time. And all I've been doing is focused on, on our teams. And I feel guilty about the work that he is doing. And my mm-hmm. two kids were just exposed to COVID. And I am so tired. Now, he's a very senior level person who yeah. you would think would not be that vulnerable. And th- But this is why it was so important. He's like, so here's the thing. We are about to do some really important planning work with Karen and David here. I want you to know that I know that every plan we come up with in the next two days is happening in that context. Because if that is what has been happening in my world, I already know some of the things that have been happening in your world. And I, and I know there are many things that you haven't shared. So my biggest priority is to help our organization and you as human beings thrive in the next 18 mm. months. That's like, so awesome. You know, that's so awesome. It was so awesome. And I like that. And he meant it, you know, and people are, were, they were so creative, right? Because they knew he cared mm-hmm. and they knew he got it. But if he was just like, okay, so our, our big three strategic priorities are this, and we need your great ideas around <laughs> this. People are like, dude, I can't handle another thing. You expect me to be creative now? Right. So I, I real and I think that that comes very hard for people to, yeah. to be that level of vulnerable. 
Ken, I, I, I want to go for another hour in, in this conversation, hearing these stories and how how organizations are applying, how leaders are exhibiting some of the very things that you talk about in courageous cultures. But fortunately, we can't. I call this section of the podcast "shameless plug time." <laughs> I mean, we're we're here we're we're here to get people to pick up a copy of Courageous Culture. So let's not be shy about it. Give us links, URLs, social media handles. How do we get in contact with you? How do we hire you? How do we get a copy of your book? How do yeah, we stay in so touch? Yeah, our, so our website is called letsgrowleaders.com. Uh, so that's, uh, you can get to many things that way. But also we have a courageouscultures.com and uh, that is where you could download a bunch of free stuff. So you can uh, download the first couple chapters of the book, including the foreword by Dr. Amy Edmondson. Uh, you can get a hold of the Idea Incubator Guide with some of the tools for free. So I would start there and see if it's for you. You know, read the first chapter and see if you, see what you think. And uh, I'd love you know love to connect with people on LinkedIn. Uh, we show up there a lot, and uh, I, I love just hearing people's stories. So I think that's uh, and it's Karen with an I, Karen Hurt. So. My guest today has been Karen Hurt, author of Courageous Cultures, How to Build Teams of Micro Innovators, Problem Solvers, and Customer Advocates. Karen, thanks for being my guest today. Thank you so much for having me. It's been absolutely my pleasure. Great conversation with Karen Hurt about her book, Courageous Cultures. Now we got CourageousCultures.com. We got Let'sGrowLeaders.com. We put those links in the show notes. So that you won't have any excuse. You're just one click away from Karen and her work and her book. We also want to make sure that you're prepared to take on 2021. There's some strategy and reflection you need to do. And I want to partner with you to do that. Hop over to PRCQuinn.com slash coaching. That's PRCQuinn.com slash coaching and learn more about my courageous leadership coaching intensive. Hey, That's all I got for this episode of the Leading Wild Green podcast. You know it's my mission to help you live, learn, and lead with confidence. So until next time, take care and God bless.